everybody. How you doing? My name is Eric. Welcome to E3. Uh, anybody have any uh, graduation activities this week? Anybody to celebrate? No? Nothing? I did graduation yesterday. My wife got her master's degree from the Florida State University. Um, and so far she said I do not have to call her master but that might change. Um, welcome, for, for those of you if, you, if this happens to be your first time at E3, uh, we hope that you have received some of our hospitality in the form of coffee or soft drinks or, um, or, or just a comfortable place to sit. We are here to, we are here to meet with, with uh, the God of the universe, which I kind of know is kind of a big thing to, to start off with, but it is a reality. Uh, we're, we don't just uh, gather here to hear music or to hear a talk. We believe that God is present with us, and, and I hope that you hear from him, not from me, not from Evan that, that this evening. I hope you hear from God, uh, because I think he wants to speak to all of us. Um, I'm excited about sort of getting to talk to you tonight about Nehemiah. The, we're in the last few weeks. I, how do you like the wall? Do you like it? you like what we've done with the place? I was telling some folks this morning that, uh, anybody remember the Kool-Aid man from the 70s? I'm really hoping that when we get to the end that like someone will be, like Mark will be up here and someone will be like, hey Kool-Aid, and Mark will come through and the Kool-Aid, oh yeah, remember that? But uh, we are in the unenviable position of having five chapters left of the book of Nehemiah and only two weeks to do it. So we're going to kind of jump around tonight. We're going to talk about things that appear in a couple different places during the last five chapters of the book, some things that God has sort of laid on my heart. But before we do that, I wanted to kind of take a step back, and I wanted to kind of rewind and talk about the reason we're building this white monstrosity in the first place. And I want to kind of talk about it by, by really talking about my life just for a, a few brief minutes. I grew up, uh, as some of you guys know, in the church. I grew up, uh, my parents went to church, and I went to church. And I believe that I was welcomed into the family of God quite early. Um, I believe that I was saved, whatever kind of spiritual language you want to you wanna attach to that. But in my teens and 20s, what I did not have was a sense of purpose. You know, we talked about how this wall represented for Nehemiah just something that God laid on his heart that he just kind of said, I'm going to do it. I'm going to go, all the chips are in, God. I feel like you're calling me to do something and I'm going to do it. You know, and if you remember, we started off the series and Dan reminded of us last week that we're asking this question through the book of Nehemiah that what, what happens when a person gives himself or herself completely over to obeying God's call? That's the kind of central question that we've asked ourselves every week as, as, we're, as we're preparing to teach this stuff. And these catchphrases just represent either obstacles or things that you can expect or principles that you can expect to encounter as you are building a wall in your life. But here's the deal. Though I was a part of the family of God in my teens and in my 20s, what I did not have was a wall. I did not have a sense of purpose in my life. 
I, I was very curious and I loved to read. I spent a lot of times around books and I spent a lot of time around music when I was growing up. But those things did not translate in my life to any sort of purpose. They remained sort of curiosities. They remained sort of things that I did, but they had no sense of like mission, I guess, to, to, to kind of put a word to it. You know, I graduated. I went to a, a private school. I went to TCU. I had no idea what a private education cost. Um, my parents gladly sent me to school. I was, we were the, kind of the first generation of my family to ever go to college. But when I graduated college with a private school education, my parents were frustrated because the first job I had out of college was just slightly above minimum wage because it was at a library. I just wanted to be around books. I was like, man, isn't it great? I could, I could read books all day long. I don't even have to check them out. What was even worse, I remember this this morning, what was even worse, I went to work at the library of my alma mater. So it was like, hey, didn't you just graduate? Yeah, I got this sweet gig here at the circulation desk. Um, and then from there on, I moved to a, a different university's library, and I was, I was quite content for a while. Um, but I really had no sense of, of mission and focus. Then I graduated to getting a clerical job, uh, filing papers eight hours a day. But don't get me wrong. Like, clerical jobs are, are awesome, and papers need to be filed. But if you know me at all, you know that filing is not my wall. Okay? And that's fine. But what was not fine was that I did not have a sense of what my life was supposed to be about. You know, I was essentially wandering with no energy, no momentum, no focus. That's what my parents were kind of like ticked about. You know, it wasn't that I had these jobs. I mean, everybody has to have a job. But what, my, what troubled my folks was this lack of sort of craving a purpose in life. Something I wanted to build. Something that I felt like I was being called to. And I think that in a community like this, meaning in a community of any size, I'm guessing that there's a couple people who might be going through the same type of thing. Who would say, maybe I graduated last year, maybe I graduated 10 years, 15 years ago, 20 years ago. I don't know, I don't know what I'm being called to. Some of you might even be like, I don't know and I'm not even sure I care. And all I'm here to tell you tonight as we kind of start this time together is that you don't have to live like that. Not that there's anything wrong with it. You might be part of the family of God and God honors that and he loves you as, as his child. But there is another way to live that involves focus and power and momentum and energy. And it involves finding that thing in your life that you say, I think I've got some building to do. I think I've got a wall to build. And here's the deal. Your wall will, will involve the brick and mortar of your life. If you have to build a wall that God calls you to, guess what? He's going to give you the tools to do it with. Because my wall involved learning and it involved music. My passions, my gifts, my talents. 
Because you see, some, eventually, as I got serious with, about my faith, a friend of mine grabbed me and looked me in the eye, and he basically said, I, I think you have something to build in your life. And so my wall, first of all, became about music and about worship and about ministering to sort of my generation, my friends. And then my wall changed a little bit, and it involved shepherding people and pastoring them and listening to their lives as they would kind of just share what's going on and where their struggles were and maybe try to provide some counsel. And now my wall sort of, evolve, sort of involves teaching from time to time. And the way, I, the way I voice it to myself is that I want to be a part of, of having people wake up to the reality of God in their lives. All of those things, all of these parts of my wall are made from the brick and the mortar of my life. And your wall will be made from the brick and mortar of your life, your passions, your gifts, your talents. When it comes, you'll know. It'll be something that God calls you to. Perhaps another way to think about what a wall can do for somebody's life is this. Uh, a few months ago, my wife and I went to Texas. Her family, her parents live in Texas. We spent the weekend with them. We were driving back on Interstate 20, and in May, the Mississippi River was reaching flood stage. Anybody remember this? The Mississippi River had flooded. And as we were coming up to Vicksburg, Mississippi, we began to look out uh, uh, across the interstate. And these are images from the air, but this is what we start, sort of was seeing. And it was so surreal because I knew that I was miles away from the river, but everywhere I saw was water, farmland covered in water. And it was, uh, it was strange to see that. But here's the deal. When we got to the river, the river didn't look and didn't exist like this. Now, when you first look at it, you might go, well, yeah, it kind of actually does, Eric. But there was such a difference between the water at Vicksburg and the water that had flooded those farms. The water that had, that had gotten out of its riverbanks, the water that had spread out, it had no momentum. It had no motion. If you would have walked up to those farms, I don't know how deep the water might have been. It may have been two feet, maybe been three, four, I don't know. But here's what it wasn't doing. It wasn't moving like this water. Like if you see the pilings, the concrete pilings, you see the white water that is existing by those things. I stood over that river for an hour just watching it. And, and you could tangibly feel the force of the Mississippi River as it churned, you know, muddy and just roiling down towards the, the Gulf of Mexico. That water has power. That water has purpose. That water has energy. That water, in a sense, has a wall. It's, it's hemmed in. It knows where it's going. A life without a wall is a life that, has, uh, that is like water that's breached its banks. It's water true, but it has no energy, no motion. I watched boats try to sail up that river. They couldn't do it. They just struggled against the current. It wasn't happening. This is what a wall does for your life. It tells you, I can say yes to this. I can say no to this because it's outside of the banks. This is what I'm doing with my life. It gives you energy. It gives you focus. So as we talk about what Nehemiah was doing, 
If you're in your teens, if you're in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, it does not matter. The point is, God offers you a wall. God offers you that thing that says, this is going to sort of define my life. And it's my thing. It's made out of my life. And one of my deepest prayers is that we become a whole sort of community of wall builders. And we can look out and see everybody's life kind of going like, man, I'm on my way. I'm on my way. I'm headed this direction. I got some momentum behind me. For me, as I said before, I know Jesus saved me at an early age. But it wasn't until probably my late 20s that I could say Jesus saved me from a lack of purpose. Because the more serious I got about my faith, the more purpose Jesus gave me. I wasn't just meant to be a bench warmer. I wasn't just meant to sit on the sidelines. And neither are any of you. And uh, as I've been saying all day, this was the message before the message. It was the preaching before the preaching. So if we all say amen. All right, we'll get on to the preaching now. Uh, that, that's, that's the preaching after the preaching. Uh, but before that, I'm going to pray. Uh, so if you guys would bow your heads, we're just going to spend some time praying. God, I know you're here with us. I know that there are some people here tonight that are building their walls right now. And they're working hard. I know there's people uh, also here that have not a clue. And God, we trust you with both of those people, both of those groups of people. For those of, them, for those of us who are building, God, keep us, uh, keep us focused. For those of us who are still searching for that thing, God, I pray that you would send people into our lives to speak in and point a direction. Because, God, I think you have a purpose and a meaning, deep meaning for all of us. So, God, stay with us. And, Lord, I pray that you would speak to my heart as I'm speaking words and collectively that we might see you and learn from you. And all God's people said, amen. All right, well, we're going to jump in to the book of Nehemiah. We're going to start in chapter 8 tonight. Uh, If you remember, last week, Pastor Dan kind of brought us to the wall's completion. The people of Jerusalem finished building the wall. And so everything from chapter 8 to the end of the book in chapter 13 is kind of post-construction phase, if you will. And we're going to take a look at sort of what happens immediately after the wall and then to some events that happen uh, a short time after that. So we're going to start reading in sort of the first verse of chapter 8, basically in October Uh, The book says, when the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled with a unified purpose at the square just inside the water gate. They asked Ezra the scribe to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given for Israel to obey. Now, the law of Moses would have consisted of something called the Pentateuch. The first five books of our Bible are what the, the Jews considered to be The law of Moses. It was Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, Numbers. Now, the law of God, the law of Moses, taught the people of Israel how to be a people of God. It was God basically saying, these are my basic instructions. These are the essentials. These are the ground rules for being a people that are sort of on my mission. And the people hadn't heard this law in a long time. So they begin to have a corporate reading of the law. I'm going to go on in uh, verse 2. On October 8th, 
Ezra the priest brought the book of the law before the assembly, which included the men and women and all the children old enough to understand. He faced the square just inside the water gate from early morning until noon and read aloud to everyone who could understand. All the people listened closely to the book of the law. And in verse 7, the Levites, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Masaiah, Kalita, Azariah, Josebed, Hanan, and Paliah. Oh, Lord, have mercy. <laughs> then instructed the people in the law while everyone remained in their places. They read from the book of the law of God and clearly explained the meaning of what was being read, helping the people understand each passage. Now the image here is that Ezra and the scribes are kind of reading the book from a, from a platform that's been erected. But while that's going on, the Levites and the priests are kind of wandering the crowd. They're interspersed among the crowd. And as Ezra and the scribes read it, they're kind of reading much closer to people. And they're explaining things as, as the book is being read because they want people to understand. Remember, this is, this is what God has wanted for us. This is what God expects out of his people. And something begins to happen in the people as they listen. So in verse 9, Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who were interpreting for the people said to them, Do not mourn or weep on such a day as this. For today is a sacred day before the Lord your God. Now listen. For the people had all been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. So as the scribes began to read the instructions and the descriptions of what it meant to be a people, the people were crushed because they had realized how far they had strayed. And they began to cry. The reality of how far they had fallen and how far they had strayed was apparent. And this image of, of the political leaders and the spiritual leaders of the community going, yeah, yeah, but guess what? I, I know you're crying. I know you realize how far you've gone. But that phrase, do not weep on such a day as this. Because this day is sacred to the Lord your God. Yes, uh, when we realize the mistakes we've made in life, it's intense. But in this case, we also need to be reminded that God holds our returning and our coming back and our meeting him for the first time as a joyous occasion. And I want you to keep that, keep that verse in mind. Do not weep on such a day as this. And we're going to come back to it a little bit later. So, the public reading of the law happens. Shortly after that, the people get together and they have a time of, of confession where they say collectively, God, we have missed it. We have, we have made mistakes. This is how we got, up, got into this situation in the first place where we were exiled in another land because we made so many mistakes. And then after, that, after this, in chapter 10, something very, very interesting and very, very curious happens. The people uh, get together and they begin to make promises to God. And they make promises revolving three main areas of life. For the Jews. They make vows to God regarding the temple. 
They say, God, we, we are not going to neglect the temple anymore. The temple is the center of our life. We believe it's where you live, God, so we're going to take care of it, God. We're going to make sure it's stocked. We're going to make sure it's taken care of. We're going to make sure the people who work there are taken care of. God, we're going to take care of the temple. We're going to do this because we're awesome and you're awesome. Isn't this great? Let's do it. Yes, let's go. Okay, they make that vow. They make a second vow. God, we're going to take care of the Sabbath. Because we believe, God, that you've ordained the Sabbath as to be something sacred. And we believe the Sabbath is necessary for reminding us that we are not our jobs. And we are not a number. And when we Sabbath, we just sit and go, I guess I'm just a child of God after all. And God, we know that's important to you, so we're going to do the Sabbath. God, we're going to do the Sabbath like nobody's done the Sabbath before. God, we're going to do it. It's going to be great because we're awesome and you're awesome. Let's do it. Let's get it. Let's get it done. I'm paraphrasing. And lastly, they say this, God, we're going to watch who we marry. Okay? Because we understand that we are a special people, God. Not special as in look how cool we are. Special as in we have a job to do. God says, you are to be my light for the whole world, Israel. You got a job to do. So as, to the degree that sometimes we hook uh, and attach our lives to people who don't have that same agenda and that same calling, it might pull us from that. So God, we're going to watch out who we marry. Because we want to be your people. Because we think it's important. And we know you said it's important. And we're awesome. And you're awesome. So let's go. Let's get it done. I'm paraphrasing again. But I think that's the gist of it. Three vows. Three vows. Clearly stated in chapter 10 of the book of Nehemiah. So what happens? And we're going to skip to the end of the entire book now. Chapter 13. And I think it's going to be evident. But uh, we'll see. Now, let me set the stage for you. First of all, Nehemiah has had to leave. Nehemiah has gone back to King Artaxerxes. So he's gone from the scene. In verse 4 of chapter 13, we read this. Eliashib the priest, who had been appointed as supervisor of the storerooms of the temple of our God, and who was also a relative of Tobiah, had converted a large storage room and placed it at Tobiah's disposal. Now this room in the temple had previously been used for storing the grain offerings, the frankincense, various articles for the, what, temple, and the tithes of grain, new wine, and olive oil, which were prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, as well as the offerings for the priests. Now, what just happened? We're told in chapter 6 of the book of Nehemiah that Tobiah was a man who was kind of one of uh, Nehemiah's opponents, that he kind of enjoyed riling Nehemiah up and he enjoyed kind of stirring up opposition. We kind of get the gist that he's an ambitious man and his agenda is not what Nehemiah's agenda is. And we're told that just a few words, a few verses after the Israelites have said, we're going to take care of the temple, God. They've offered storage space in the temple for a man of questionable motives who is not part of Nehemiah's agenda. Furthermore, the room was used for, for storing materials for worship. 
Uh, we don't know what we're going to do with that. We're going to let Tobiah have this space because he's pretty connected and he's pretty, he's, he's pretty wired into the political scene. So we're just going to give this space to him. Promise to protect the temple. Giving space in the temple for people of questionable motives. In verse 10, Nehemiah writes this. I also discovered that the Levites, these are the people who were responsible for conducting worship in the temple. The Levites had not been given their prescribed portions of food. So they and the singers who were to conduct the worship services had all returned to their fields. So God, we're going to take care of the temple. We're going to make sure it's taken care of. We're going to make sure the people are taken care of. Oh, we forgot to pay the Levites. Oh, they're gone. What's happening? promises, vows, commitments broken in a really, really short time. Let's go on. In verse 15, Nehemiah writes this. In those days, I saw men of Judah treading out their wine presses. And what's your text say? On the Sabbath. This was a no-no. They were also bringing in grain, loading it on donkeys, and bringing their wine, grapes, figs, and all sorts of produce to Jerusalem to what? Sell on the when? <laughs> Whoops. God, we're going to take care of the Sabbath. We're going to protect the Sabbath. Well, we got some, it's really, the grapes are awesome. You just got to try them. So we'll just sell them on this Sabbath, maybe just this once. We're going to protect the Sabbath. Vow broken. Okay, well, that's two out of three. Let's look. Maybe, maybe we can get a 30%. That's not passing in my grad. We'll see. Verse 23, chapter 13. About the same time, Nehemiah writes, I realized that some of the men of Judah had married women from Ashdod, Ammon. And Moab, furthermore, half their children spoke the language of Ashdod or some other people and could not speak the language of Judah at all. Uh, we're not going to intermarry, but man, have you, you know, like just this one, maybe. What's just happened? promises made, commitments made. I'm going to do this for you, God, because you're awesome and we're awesome and we just want to get this done. And then we turn around and every vow that's been made has been broken. Every promise that's been made has been compromised. And this all happens. Now, I don't know how many folks were here last week, but does anybody remember how long did it take the people to build the wall? 52 days. 52 days, Nehemiah worked with these people. He told them, guys, this is what we're going to do because this is important to God. It's important to his people. So for 52 days, we're going to work together. We're going to get this done. 52 days ago was June 16th. 52 days is not a very long time. 52 days, Nehemiah labors with these people and tells them what they're doing. And in a very short time after 52 days, they have already begun to spin back to their sort of old ways. It's not a very long time to sort of forget what you're doing and forget who you are. But it happens, doesn't it? 
And maybe it's happened to you. I know that I've made promises. God, I promise I'll never do that again. God, I promise I'll follow through on that. I don't know. Has anybody ever made a promise to God that they've maybe kind of had to whistle? I don't, maybe I didn't really mean that that way. So what's happening? The people of Israel have drifted. That's the word that just has come up over and over again as I've thought about this. It's drift. And so what I want to do is I want to first kind of address this from the point of view of a person who might be leading something, who might be building something. And I would just say it this way, that if you are that person, you need to realize that vision will leak. Vision will drift. Nehemiah had said for 52 days, this is what we're going to do, guys. But as soon as he's out of the picture, guess what starts happening? <sighs> what am I talking about? Well, parents. Uh, if vision did not leak, right around the age of 8 or 10, you could sit your child down and say, here's a deal. Don't do drugs. Work hard on your homework and be careful who you choose as your friend. If vision didn't leak, you could just say, hey, I'll see you at 18. We're going to be fine. For those of you who are parents in the room, is that the way parenting works? No. Constantly going back. Constantly reminding. Hey, remember, you, you know, we just talked about this an hour ago. You still can't, you know, hit your brother. You, you know. For those of you who might be leading something in the business world, project management, if vision did not leak, you would be able to sit your team down and go, okay, we got a deliverable that's due in six months. Okay, this is the target. This is what we're going to do. Now, I'm sure that uh, everybody is going to be okay for six months, and I'll see you at the due date, and I know we're all going to be working fine. So, good luck. Is that the way project management works? Maybe for the state. I don't know. But that's not the way it is. You have to constantly go back and go, guys, remember what we're doing? Remember this mission that we're on. Remember what's going on. Uh, lastly, maybe you have a friend who is trying desperately to get rid of a habit in their life. To get rid of something that has weighed them down, that is destroying their life. I can tell you from personal experience and from friends that I know, habits die hard, don't they? They don't take 52 days to destroy most of the time. They take weeks, months, sometimes years. You can't sit that friend down and go, hey, let's paint a picture of your life without these drugs, without these relationships, without this stuff that's weighing you down. Let's paint a picture. Let's set a plan. Okay, I'll see you in a year. I'm sure you'll be clean. Is that the way that works? No. It's constantly walking through life with people, reminding them of what you're doing. And if you're leading anything, if you're building any walls in your life, you're going to have to address vision leaking and vision drifting. So if you find yourself that way, just three basic questions that you have to ask and go back to people constantly with. And there are these three. One, what is our target? 
<laughs> or you might have to tell them, this is the target. What are the boundaries? What are the rules? What are the guidelines that we're going to be playing by, guys? And you might think all of these things are self-evident, but trust me, they are not. Vision drifts. And then lastly, why are we doing this? Nehemiah had a, a strong sense of where he was at in God's story. We are doing this because uh, God's people need to get back on track with their vocation of being salt and light in the world. That's why we're doing this, guys. It's not about building a wall. It's about being on track with the purposes of God. Those are the reminders. So that's drift if you're leading something. That's drift if you are building something. Now, I want to take a step back in these last few moments that we have, and I want to talk about something that's a little bit heavier, but it's a little bit broader question that probably addresses us all, and it gets at this idea of have you ever drifted? Have you ever made, as we said, have you ever made promises to God and you were sure you were going to keep them? But you drifted. So to do this, I'm going to ask for a volunteer. I'm going to let you process this while I walk down the steps because I know people start hearing volunteers and they need time to kind of prepare their minds. So by the time I reach the bottom of these steps, I'm hoping that I'll have a volunteer. Do I have a volunteer? I will call on a volunteer, which doesn't make you a volunteer. Rebecca Abbott, thank you for being a volunteer. Only because you're honest. Okay. If nothing else, you're honest. Okay. What, what you guys can't see up here is there are a couple of fairly straight lines taped to the floor. And we're going to talk about drift, and we're going to do this by having Rebecca take a test. So, Rebecca, would you place your feet on the beginning of that line? Would you close your eyes, please? And I want you to try to walk a straight line from here to there. I will tell you when to stop, and I will keep you from busting into something that will hurt you pretty bad. Go ahead. And okay. Okay, stop. How did you do? You are on the line. She is on the line, ladies and gentlemen. Okay. Let's see how you do when the line's a little bit longer. So, feet on the line. All right, you ready? Eyes closed. Promise? Okay, go ahead. She's walking. She's walking. It's not easy. Okay, how'd you do? You're basically still on the line. That's great. Now, let me ask you a question. How well do you think she could have stayed on the line if the line went from here to that wall? If she had to walk from here to that wall blindfolded, could she have stayed on the line? If she had to walk for 52 days, could she have stayed on the straight and narrow? No. Sorry, Rebecca, you're a great person, but I don't think you could have done it. Why? It's because of this thing called drift. I ran across these, uh, this guy talking about a bunch of studies that people did throughout mostly the 20th century, but a couple more recently where people decided to see if human beings could walk in a straight line naturally. So what they would do is they would take people and they would blindfold them. They would take them out to these wide open spaces where they could not get hurt. And they would say, we want you to walk in a straight line for as long as you can. And they would map their path. And here's the deal. You can't do it. Okay? 
they, they tried it repeatedly. They put people in a dense fog where you weren't blindfolded, but you couldn't see anything. And they said, get from here to there in a straight line. Couldn't be done. Uh, finally, I'll just show you a, an example. It's, this is an animation of a test that they did in 1928. They took a farmer out to his car. They blindfolded him and put him in a field. And they said, drive in a straight line. And they traced his path. And this is what the farmer used. Kind of, okay, we're twisting. We're twisting. We're coming over here. We're curving again. And then this was pretty consistent. We see the spirals just start to get tighter and tighter and tighter. And then... Finally, it kind of ends when they, uh, I don't know, they, they keep him from crashing and running into his farmhouse. But basically, you cannot do this. And the way the guy who was examining the studies put it, I, I thought was so profound. He said the two findings, the first finding that this, show, that this gives us is that human beings have a profound inability to walk in a straight line without a fixed point of reference. Try as you might to walk in a straight line. Unless you have a fixed point of reference, you cannot do it. The second way they put things is that human, be human beings have an innate tendency to curve when we think we're going straight. Because they asked every one of those people, did you go in a straight line? Yeah. No. The way I would put this is we all have to come to terms with the fact that we are born to bend. We are born to bend. We are born to drift. Stories like what Israel does and in, in the folks in Jerusalem in, in Nehemiah, sometimes they kind of shock, but I think there's also a part, part of us that goes, you know what, that's my story too. I've drifted. I've bent quite readily. And we're told that the way to get from point A to point B is not to sort of walk with one step in front of the other. Because I don't know about you, but I have no tape in my life to tell me where to go. I have no tape when I wake up in the morning that lays out my path for me. I pretty much wing it. I don't know about you guys. So walking down and looking for tape isn't going to get me anywhere. I'm going to just drift unless I have target to put it another way you can't get from point a to point b without looking at something fixed in the world and i think all of us would ask what is this thing because i am drifting out of control well here's what i would suggest to you tonight that there's a guy uh, named paul who wrote a letter to a church at a place called Colossae. And this scripture really just kind of spoke to me as I was thinking about fixed targets and looking for them. He writes this in chapter 3, that since you have been raised to new life with Christ, and he's talking to everyone who's kind of signed on to this Jesus thing. He says, set your sights, in other words, fix your target on the realities of heaven, where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. That's where your target lies. Eugene Peterson was a guy who 
wrote, uh, wrote a paraphrase of the Bible called The Message, and I love the way he put this scripture. He said, don't look down while you're walking around. That you need to look up to heaven. And he says, because that's where the action is. I love that image. That's where the action is. That's where life is. If you want to walk a path without drifting, you better be looking at the realities of heaven where something called new life is waiting because a guy named Jesus is sitting there going, come on, come this way, come this way. Paul goes uh, on to say this in verse 10. He says, put on this new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and become like him. So as you fix your eyes on this target, I believe that we're transformed to look more like this man, Jesus. And we can walk the paths that we've been called to walk a little straighter and a little surer. And then Paul kind of uh, wraps it up with what I would say is a description of the realities of heaven. And they're just things like this. He says, the realities of heaven are tender-hearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, Paul says it's making allowance for each other's faults, forgiving each other, and loving each other. Those are the targets. That's what helps you walk in a straight line. That's what keeps you from drifting. I saw this lived out in such a, a, a beautifully simple way. My son uh, just learned to ride a bike. He's eight years old. I don't know if you guys have ever met him. But uh, he learned to ride a bike this year. And, you know, he, he got on the bike, and he, he, uh, he started going. And the first thing he does, as soon as he gets going, you know what he does? He just looks down at his feet. You know, because he's like, he's like riding a bike. And we're behind him going, Levi, look up, look up. And I swear to you, like one of the first six times that he rode his bike, he rode straight into a parked car. Because he was just, because he was just like, I'm riding, I'm riding, you know. If he doesn't look up, if he didn't look up, he was just going down the street like, you know, this and, and everything. You can only go where you need to go by looking up. It's counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive. Because we think that we get our path. We think that we know what, the way we want to live when we make these promises to God and we start going and we start walking and we're, we're focusing really, really hard on the path we're walking. Well, what we really should be doing is looking up. Or we're going to drift. Or we're going to bend. I think that's the reality of Israel's story in Nehemiah. They drifted. And we drift as well. What I want to do here is, as we close our time is uh, something that I don't know if we've ever actually done at E3 formally. And uh, what I want to do is we want to pray for you. Because we believe that the path is a really, really legit thing. And we believe that sometimes, sometimes we're on the path and, and we're walking really, really hard. And we have the wall we're building. And it's just a struggle to stay on it. We want to pray for you for, for that. Some of you might find yourself in a place where you're like, you know what? I drifted a long, long time ago. Well, here's what I would say to you. Uh... If you've wandered from the path, you don't get back on the path by sitting down where you're at. You get back on the path by looking up and seeing where your target is and start pointing your life back in that direction. 
So maybe you're here tonight, and you're just like, I need to take a step back towards the target. We want to pray for you. We're not going to try. We're not here to, we're not going to try to convert you. We're not going to make you feel bad about yourself. We just want to offer words to our God for your sake. So I'm going to invite uh, Evan and the, and the band up. They're going to play a couple songs. Um, Dan Durenberger, the pastor of Future Generations, he's going to be right over here by this wall by the Pathways booth. I'm just going to be standing down here. If you want to be prayed for tonight, if you're just kind of willing to say, look, I need help staying on the path. It's been hard. It's been a struggle. Or if you're saying, I have wandered and I need to just have a glimpse of the target. We just want to be here for you. And I'm going to pray for us, and, and then the band is going to begin to play. So if you guys w- would bow your heads uh, as we begin to respond to God. Heavenly Father, I thank you that salvation is not merely, uh, not merely kind of an idea that we embrace, but it's a path that we walk, and it's a man that we follow. And God, I pray that, that the image of Jesus would be fixed in our, in our, in our minds, Lord. And that, we, and that we realize that he's guiding us. He's not keeping us in the same place. He wants us to walk a path. And Lord, I just pray that we would learn just kind of what it means to, to embrace that idea and to say, I, I'm not going to just focus on one step in front of the other, but I'm going to look at the target, look at the realities of heaven. God, I pray that you would keep us on this path. God, I pray that you would have your way in these moments that we have here together. Just that we would be uh, have open hearts to what you might want for us. Amen.